Well, I've, I've got a question here, um, which is <laughs> basically basically um, um, <laughs> an invitation to talk about anything I want, I guess. Uh, um, talk about a bit about my own experience of um, well, my own experience uh, to share some insight from your experience. Ah, uh-huh. some insight from my experience. So not any kind of experience. And um, and uh, also, well, how people from different countries react reacted to me as a Buddhist monk, and um, how uh, people could uh, how the Dhamma could affect and improve people's lives. So, hmm. <laughs> uh, Right, I'm just going to start somewhere and talk about some, something directly that, that comes to mind. So it'll be a little bit from my own experience and how it could um, affect and improve uh, other people's lives, which is of something that you probably all have your own very valid experience of. I hope that's why you are here and keep coming, that it does improve your life. And I think I leave out the middle bit about how people from different countries reacted to me as a Buddhist monk. I don't... Um, I don't know whether that would lead me any where that useful because I haven't travelled to that many different countries as a Buddhist monk and I think on the whole probably all fairly similar, so I don't think it it might that might invite me to into all kinds of dubious speculations about different cultures and <laughs> it's probably most of it not so relevant. Um So inside, <clears throat> from my own practice, and yeah, how, how do I, how I feel it can improve people's lives? Of course, there are countless ways and, and endless ways. But a little earlier um, this afternoon, we had this discussion, um, our tea time discussion, uh, around mindfulness. Um, obviously, the mindfulness, or, which is one way in which in English we translate I tend to translate the, the, the Pali word sati as very central element of the Buddhist teaching and of the, the, the practices that he offered for liberation. Um, it does not only kind of appear, appear in all kinds of contexts and suttas, but also he has very much um, emphasized it as, as really the key to liberation. Um, You remember the teaching that both, I think, Ajahn Munindo, Ajahn Sumedho, and Vietze like to repeat a lot and talk about a lot from the Dhammapada. Mindfulness is a path to the deathless. Um, the four foundations of mindfulness is, a, is a, one of the most famous and popular text suttas from the, from the Buddhist teachings and many different interpretations and, and meditation systems are kind of centered around the, the four foundations of mindfulness and also the four foundations of mindfulness is one of the texts which quite emphatically kind of um, states that if you just practice those four foundations of mindfulness, the mindfulness of the, the body, of uh, feelings, you know, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, uh, mindfulness of the mind or states of mind and mindfulness of Dhamma which is a bit of more all-inclusive kind of say reflective approach in all the different teachings of the Buddha um, all those many lists that we have in Theravada Buddhism um, if you practice this correctly and continuously I think uh, 
in, in, the, in the sutta itself, the Buddha goes down to, I think, right kind of seven days, isn't it? Seven days and seven nights, and that would surely lead you to liberation. So just that. And it is also a teaching that I think has first, certainly one of the key elements that has been, has attracted me to Buddhism and to meditation and has been, it felt to me right from the beginning, quite uh, transformative in my life. And it, it, certainly how it felt to me subjectively right at the very beginning, actually from my very first, the very, very first formal meditation that I did, sitting down to meditate, uh, had quite a liberating effect on what I thought felt quite liberating. Um, basically, I felt it had turned my life around for about at least, at least 180 degrees, I think. Uh, <laughs> and uh, it has kept being a teaching that's been always fascinated me, you know, attracted me. And you, you, you get that teaching of mindfulness, of course, in all kinds of teachings, not only Buddhist context, but um, I remember quite early on, I've, I've read Krishnamurti. Krishnamurti talks about it, isn't it? Mindfulness, and, uh, or with different terms, you know. Sometimes people call it awareness, uh, or pure attention, or... Um, And the the uh, the way it it can liberate you and the benefits or kinds of benefits it can give to your life is kind of gets stressed a lot in all of course of teaching. I mean, these days you can do mindfulness courses even at university, and you can learn about mindfulness at, at university and it's taught in various contra- contexts. The mindfulness in the in healthcare and and um, and that's. So it gets often then taught, uh, taken out actually of the of the context of the Buddha's teaching, so right, of the, you know, the, the, the package that in which the Buddha actually presented it, and it's just as a teaching in and of itself. And that's partly because just in itself, just practicing mindfulness, let's say, uh, to be more. Uh, in many ways, we talk, talk about mindfulness, but it's just as a practice in itself to just bring the attention, the conscious attention to what you're doing has very obvious and immediate benefits. And, and that, that you just be more directly with, with your immediate experience. First of all, you should become actually just more aware of what's actually happening you know, right now. In some ways, first of all, it just intensifies one's experience. You know. And it's also very obvious, that to, seems to me, in any kind of, in any kind of job context. Right? So it just means you're more aware of what you're doing, so you're probably going to do a better job. And whether you're a football player or a, a, you know a healthcare assistant or a prime minister, you know mindfulness is going to be helpful. And so you see it also a lot. There's a lot much success been been taught in that context. I mean, you get a lot in kind of business manage you know uh, management teachings. You know mindfulness for managers and things. And, uh, mindfulness teachers teaching in in companies. Um, is of course a way. Of course, you have to make a living as well if you're a meditation teacher. And that's where the money is, and obviously, it's also a place where it can be as anywhere um, applied. An interesting one I read some time ago in one of those American Buddhist magazines about one of the mindfulness teachers there, or vipassana teachers, um, who's, who had been an associate trainer of the. I think it was well. For at that time, I think of the the Los Angeles Lakers famous basketball team, and I think before that it was with the, was it the Chicago Bulls or something like that. And he was basically teaching them um, the straight Vipassana teaching. And it, supposedly it's been an enormous part of their, um, the success of those teams um, that they had while he was uh, teaching them. Um, it might have helped as well that I think while he was with the Chicago Bulls, I think Magic Johnson was playing for them, and, and they also both swapped over to the Los Angeles Lakers. You know, and they promptly won all the titles. But so, yeah, you can see it just goes in, in, in all kinds of areas. With, and it wouldn't be so successful in marketing itself if it wouldn't bring the obvious benefits to the people. It gets sometimes also um, presented in the spiritual context as just the only thing that you really need to do, just be mindful. Mindfulness takes you all the way. You know, just be mindful. Um, particularly 
perhaps in more secularized context, um, if that's not a contradiction in itself, I'm not quite sure my terms here, and in, in, on, in the spiritual path, and there's a lot of distrust, which of course in modern society there is, of all, you know, spiritual traditions and all the cultural packaging that goes with it, and, uh, you know, um, may unnecessary, maybe forms that are perceived as unnecessary, maybe even distracting from the you know, true uh, essence of the teaching. And that's, of course, even as you see like in, in, the, in the suttas, in the traditional kind of teachings of the, the Buddha, where mindfulness very directly points to towards essence. And why the Buddha put it so central. I mean, one of the key features, uh, the, the way that I would in the way that I would see mindfulness, one thing we always have to be aware of, of course, we're using just a concept here, isn't it? I mean, I'm just talking about mind, mindfulness. And we cannot talk about mindfulness. Many people might be talking about mindfulness, but what do we mean by it? We can, you know, people can still have slightly different interpretation of what they're actually talking about there, particularly because most of us will probably agree that it's a very elusive kind of thing, really. What is it, really, mindfulness? You know? I mean, even in the Theravada tradition, even among the senior monks and nuns of our own tradition, you might feel people, get people talking a little bit different about it. And I found it quite confusing at the beginning, actually. I had my own ideas, and then you hear one Arjan talking about mindfulness like in some way, and this is, ah, yeah, that's it. And then you hear another one talking about it, and it hmm, seems to be something different, you know. Or even you can have the same teacher talking about it in ways that seems to be self-contradictory or different times of the day, you know. If you're very fixed on concepts huh, and are not, not grounded enough in exploration of your own experience, then it can be very confusing. It's maybe ne- necessary in the part now we you know, start to appreciate, look at you know, what those terms might mean for ourselves. In part, we're going to have to you know, come to clarity about it as much as we can, you know, this is how we use our terms for ourselves. But, um, so mindfulness for me is basically this, this uh, is, is a form of attention, isn't it? It's just one way of talking if the difference of being mindful or not is, you could say, if I know, I know what I'm doing, but only in this very simple way that I'm, I am with what I'm doing rather than from being maybe fuzzy in the mind or distracted. Um, that's one way, actually, in which in the, in the commentaries, mindfulness is, is defined as, as an uh, opposite to distractedness, or not being scattered. Like if you know the difference, if you're doing something, if you're doing some work, and you can do it heedlessly, well, heedlessness is one opposite no, that's, that's offered in the commentaries to mindfulness. Now, see, if you're Mindful is what you're doing, then there's presence of mind, you're with it. You know? um, so in a way, it's a, it's, it is a form of concentration, but not a concentration that is fixed on an object. It's more concentration in the present, you know? so that the mind is with what's present, actually, rather than uh, what, of course, our mind naturally does, moving all the time to the future and the past, remembering, projecting, and actually getting lost in that, and therefore not actually being fully present. One term in which you can define mindfulness is fullness of presence, or presence of mind. How present are we actually? And what are we present for? No? I think this terms that, that qualifies two terms of mindfulness. Presence of mind, how present are we? How much are we actually present? As opposed to just you know, being lost in thoughts, distractions. If you're really present, we can still think about the future or the past, but we know that we are doing this in the present moment. I know this is an activity. I'm, I'm now quite aware, if I'd be doing that, or that I'm remembering something from the past. You know? So it's not, it's not, that's not, one doesn't have to contradict another, but it's different from being lost in memory, you know? which we all know how that is, like when we try to practice mindfulness of the breath or whatever in the meditation, the mind keeps getting lost in its own fantasies, imaginations. The moment that there's mindfulness, I notice, I see, aha, it's this, no? ah, it's the memory. At that moment, I'm already here. You know, I'm not lost in the memory anymore. So then, of course, we can choose. We, or we might choose whatever you want to do. We might then go back to our primary meditation object, the breath, the body, whatever. But 
you know, mindfulness has already happened there before we actually go back to the breath. It's already there in the moment that we notice what we're actually doing, whatever it is. You know, it's that form of presence. And that's, of course, I think it's, you know, it highlights the other part in which you know, mindfulness can vary. What, what, when we are present, when I'm saying I'm, I'm present in the present moment, you know, of course there's what in this present moment I'm actually aware of, what I'm actually present for. Of course, we can, we can see there are kind of, even now here, sitting now here, there's an infinite kind of depth and layer and variety of elements of what makes up our present experience. Only part of it are we probably aware of. So in this way, we can also see like mindfulness is like, it's not, it's just either there or it's not there. There's always some amount of what we might call mindfulness, some amount of sati. But it's a bit like a dimmer switch, isn't it? There can be more or less of it, and can be more coarse or more subtle. There might be. There's always at any time there'll be necessarily lots, you know, an amount of our of what makes up our reality that we are not aware of. And one of the ways in which actually um, delusion works, or ignorance works, and keeps suffering in place is that it's actually it's almost an active force in our life, which keeps actually the focus of mindfulness limited. It means it keeps us away from, uh, it keeps us from being aware of aspects of our life which would be relevant if you want to learn about, you know, making an end to suffering. Because according, if the Buddha's right, the Buddha said, we're causing suffering to ourselves and others out of ignorance. Uh, and it's not just the passive not knowing. It's, that might be an element of it. No? But this is almost even like an active, active force in our life. This part of us that doesn't really want to know, because it's often it's a bit more cozy sometimes. So just you know, it's like you know, it's, I think ignorance wouldn't be so powerful. It wouldn't if it wouldn't be have, wouldn't have its attract, attractive parts of it. Well, you know, you know, sometimes becoming more aware, part of where it actually stops. You know, we're aware to just a certain, just we are aware, but only with a very limited focus. Is because. If you widen it up, you might actually experience actually a bit more of hmm, painful things. You know? Pain, of course, as we know, there's having a body, having a mind, there's pain involved. And one way uh, in which one strategy, we have all have lots of strategies, of course, when avoiding pain and experiencing less of it is, is numbing ourselves against it or just being looking another way or not really knowing, not really wanting to know. You know? So we've, we develop actually from early on quite how you want to call them, active and some passive or whatever, but strategies and to limit mindfulness, to not be mindful, to not be aware of large areas, of maybe of more and more and larger areas of our life. Some of us are more successful with that than others. <laughs> so um, part of the process of meditation and the cultivation of mindfulness and one of the benefits of it and in the spiritual context, this is, is of course to regaining actually access to those elements, you know, to those parts of our experience, of our reality, and to gain insight into them. And that means insight into how we create and are responsible for our own suffering. Because only then, when we realize that, that we are responsible for that, that we are doing it, that ignorance, in all those years, who knows, lifetimes, maybe has actively prevented ourselves from seeing it, from looking at even looking at it even looking vaguely into that direction, <laughs> you know, means that we can actually stop doing it. So it's like there's a difference between the whole thing about mindfulness actually becomes spiritual when it's not anymore like, like a tool that we use in order to achieve specific goals and are in our interest, which is a valid use of, of mindfulness, eh? to become a better marksman or a better basketball player or, uh, you know, or whatever. Um, but we're actually more like, uh, it becomes more spiritual when, we, when, when it almost goes the other way around. You know, mindfulness becomes actually the main interest because it's the access to freedom and to investigation and, and questioning our existence actually radically. And then all of our experience any of it, and more, and more and more of it, as we gain strength and courage, becomes then actually an opportunity to develop mindfulness. No? So we don't use mindfulness anymore as a tool to develop some other skill, 
like marksmanship, um, but we use all the areas of our life to develop mindfulness. And what did do, why do we develop mindfulness? Well, you know, if we have faith in the Buddhist teaching, or you know, if we have confirmed faith through our own experience, because then mindfulness becomes a direct access and a tool to liberate ourselves from suffering. You know, because if if that's mindfulness, the, you know, this kind of clear attention to what's actually happening right now, that's a prerequisite, according to the Buddha, to examine our experience and the very structure of our experience as it is happening right now. So that really, in a way, makes practice real. You know, it's a difference from, say, reading about Buddhism in a book or reading about, say, afflictive emotions, like reading about anger in a book, and actually looking at it and experience it in, in real-life experience right now. You know, it's quite easy to be wise about anger and know all kinds of things about reading it in a book. But to deal with one's own anger, we need more than just that theoretical knowledge. You know? We need actually to work with it where we experience it. So that's here and now, and it's in the body, isn't it? So it's mindfulness that gives us a direct and a skillful access to it. When we become mindful, say, about our emotions, and where, where do we become mindful? So in the body. That's why the first practice is always mindfulness of the body. You know, that's where it's actually happening. It's the body that takes us into the actuality of our experience, into the actuality of our suffering, and into the actuality of how and where we are creating our suffering. No? So first noble truth, there is suffering. No? Then, then, but then there's, uh, there are those three aspects, isn't it? Suffering, there is suffering, and then what is saying? Suffering needs to be understood. No? And then the third one is suffering has been understood. And if you have understood suffering, it means we have understood the causes of suffering. No? So that's the second noble truth. There are causes of suffering. The cause of suffering needs to be abandoned. No? And then the third aspect of the second noble truth, suffering has to be abandoned. For the whole process actually to even be initiated, well, what's the first thing that needs to happen? You know? uh, suffering needs to be understood. In order that, to understand suffering, we have to look at it, isn't it? And obviously not in a book. Well, that might be a start. That's, that's, that's good for a start. But then where's actually happening? Where's suffering happening? You know? It's in the body. It's in the mind. It's an actuality. It's now. It's here. And it's mindfulness that brings our attention right there. So that's why it's so um, important. That's one reason why it's so important, the Buddhist teaching. But then often, of course, it's, it's, it's not enough. Which we also, as we also might find out in our practice, um, you might say, in, in some ways, it, it can be potentially enough. And I think that's first partly some. And again, I think that can create confusion some for people. Now, I, I, I hate to misinterpret other people's teachings. So this is just maybe my limited view on it. But say, I right from the beginning, uh, when I started with, with Buddhism, Buddhist meditation. Um, I read a bit about Buddhism and I started meditating. It was basically an experience of meditation and an experience of mindfulness that really got me into this. And I've, I've, I still wasn't very, say, fixed or focused on Buddhism. I just looked for all kinds of teaching. I remember one, one teacher I, I read just because I came across his books was Krishnamurti. It was called one of, one of the, some of you might have read him, a very powerful teacher, um, and who was very much a strong just emphasis on just, emphasis on just awareness, just mindfulness, which in some ways I find quite convincing because if you look at this, the quality of this, what mindfulness is, if you experience it in the present moment, what is it you know, that allows us this possibility to look directly, say, at, a, at an emotion and suffering? Is this just, you know, you know as we sometimes say, like, like call it, is this here now, non-judgmental, you know, Ajahn Menino likes to put in the appreciative kind of awareness. So now, if you if if you recognize that in the present moment, then of course we we might also immediately get this kind of the taste of freedom that is that is already in that quality, right, just there, offered right there. It's like an, a permanent invitation, isn't it? So 
because if we can see, if we can actually, what I just presented, that is a first step of ex, ex, uh, examining suffering, like in an emotion like anger, we can see that right there, right at the first step, if we just receive the emotion like anger, that which receives it, that which knows it, so that mindfulness, that kind of attention, that awareness, it's, of course it's not, it's not angry, isn't it? And it's not only is it not angry, it's not isn't anything much really, isn't it? It's just, it just knows, it's just aware. It's just that which knows the anger. And I think, hopefully, not just in theory, but also if you just, you know, just an experience, we can see that that's already, the freedom is already in there, you know, as a potential. Right there. I mean, you don't have to look anywhere else. If, if you want to look for peace, you know, as it were, in the, in the, it's, it's right there in the center of the storm, isn't it? It's, it's just that which knows what is not peace is in itself actually peaceful. And that's quite, that's, I mean, that's, it's marvelous, isn't it? And it's, it's, it's really mind-boggling, right? When you, when, you, when you kind of lean into it and look at it, what, what is this, this potential? Isn't it? this is, it's here, it's right now, no? That quality that we have in our experience, which basically just knows what, what, whatever you know right now, that you're sitting here or whatever you, you think, you know, just knows that as a thought, or whatever you feel, whatever emotion, and it doesn't have, it doesn't judge it. It doesn't have any judgment, no. Because really, if there's a judgment, it's, again, that's another thing you can know that you can be aware of. It always escapes than any kind of more uh, concrete and any content, you know, because anything that's content, it just can be aware of. And in that, there's, I think, that's kind of the direct access, like if you like the, the window to the possibility, the potential of peace. And freedom within mindfulness or awareness, and it's unlimited because it quite literally, and we can, could, I, I think, in principle, we can see that straight away. It, it can, it just works with anything. You know? Doesn't matter how disturbing, how painful, how big or small, how subtle. That which is aware of is free of it. You know, if. And that's a big thing. If you could, if you can just you know that big if, if you can actually abide in that, and that's of course where we all our experience, a frustrating experience for most of us, I guess, is where we always fall short. We might get this. We get this. It's like the carrot in front of the eyes of the donkey, isn't it? It's, it's like right there, and it's it is real. I mean, that's, to me, it is. We can we can taste it. And it's a real taste, the taste of freedom, you know. But we. We, we always keep, seem to keep forgetting it or missing it just when it really becomes important. And, and <laughs> you know, before we know it, we've already lost it again or missed it and just got you know, identified again with whatever it is, our thought or our emotion or whatever. You know? And that's why, why, in some ways, you, you can... I don't know how it was for, for Krishnamurti, who always seemed to insist in his teaching quite, you know, and also in his, in his discussions, very much on, on just that. You know, forget about all the rest. Just, you know, he would just... He was quite impatiently, you know, trying to push, you know, the, the people he would talk to. Him, to the, Can't you see it right now, you know? This kind of, it's already here. You're free already. The awareness is just there. It's this, this permanent invitation, why can't you see it? Why can't you do it? No? Like me, he said. Well, what do we know? You know, I mean, as when I read some of his things about his biography, I started to get some doubt about whether he was, how, how free he really was himself. I don't know. It's not up to me to judge it. You know? But I think sometimes when this happens, my interpretation is, you know, I don't know how, you know, Krishnamurti got where he got, but sometimes if people have, for whatever reasons, have this very s- strong... Um, realizations and to whatever extent can really kind of abide with just really quite consciously abide just in this in this state of awareness of really just being aware of, of whatever arises without identifying it 
often seem to find it quite difficult to actually understand that other people might, they might even understand them in principle, but just can't, can't do it. And you know, this is almost like there's no, there's no, you know, no ladder, you know, there's nothing offered to come like from that place of kind of limitation to the place of freedom, except from just remembering that you can just be aware of whatever it is right now. Uh, and most of us will probably more share the experience how even if you understand it, stood it in principle, and might even have the experience of it every now and then to, 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 to live that to a certain extent. Uh, we just can't sustain it. And that's, of course, where, why, you know, there's sort of like all spiritual traditions, whatever form you know, they are, and like one of them, like the Buddhist teaching, the Eightfold Pass, offer just as equally important all the, what some people like to dismiss as all the wrapping around it, which basically is, you know, designed to, to strengthen and purify, say, our vehicle, no? our mind, mm-hmm. to actually be able to to re- abide in this uh, mindfulness awareness as a refuge, to not lose it. So that's a probably, we, you know, most of you and I have been practicing for quite a long time. Will have you noticed how sometimes, sometimes almost imperceptibly, but gradually, you realize that there's a, the the ability to stay mindful with whatever happens, and also the ability to to become more mindful of more aspects of our experience, to become more subtle, actually, in our mindfulness. This is something that actually develops gradually by just keep, keeping applying ourselves to this, you know, like, a, uh, like just the formal meditation. You know, this is almost like it's training sessions in which we strengthen that kind of muscle of mindfulness. And it does work. I mean, sometimes we don't notice. You know, it depends also what, we, what expectations we have, you know. Sometimes we, we have specific expectations that particular things should happen to us in, in meditation. We, we often, you know, naturally, the mind tends to be greedy for spiritual experiences or what. You know. I mean, it's just notice it. I mean, just by patiently, just keep applying, you know, just keep training attention to just keep looking at what, how is it right now? What am I experiencing? Just bringing the awareness again and again back to the body, back to the mind, and being willing. You know, to put up with the mind, with all its, you know, habits, and but always with the interest in learning and extending, you know, our abilities to become aware of more and more of our experience. You know, that gets stronger, and suddenly you just actually starting to notice things more, yeah. or, or maintain also more, more of our energy, or more say, our, the center of our being in the knowing, rather than in the, you know, becoming. Hmm? You know, less of us becoming angry, more of us just knowing that there is anger arising. And sometimes we actually need to be reminded, actually pay direct attention to, to notice what difference that is. There's a huge difference between becoming angry and knowing anger to arise. You know, if you know anger to arise, it's not really, you know, it might not feel pleasant, but it's not, it's not really going to hurt you as long as you can stay in the knowing. You know, you're not going to be bashed around by it. Because uh, you know and you, you can live, you, have, you realize the space in you which is more than the anger. And that it applies to any emotion of course. And the more we can do that, the more we can learn that, the more we can actually then actually realize not just as an idea but realize because then we are living it. You know, part of that potential of that awareness of what it actually is and what it can be. And it's always going to be a mystery, I think. <laughs> It's not something we can understand with the intellectual mind, but we can become more of this. That kind of freedom, that realization is not something to know. It's something to be. We can be that. We can be that freedom. And, um, well, that's, that, that's, that's, you know, not, people just, talking about in general, that's basically like what has pulled me in into practice. I'm talking like from my own uh, experience. And, and that kind of process right, has been like that for me right from the beginning. I was saying the first meditation practice that I, that I had, I mean, I was, I was looking, uh, I was interested in spiritual traditions and things like that. And, and um, I had some interest in Buddhism, I had heard about it. But more or less by what you call chance, isn't it, I came some point across a book on, on Zen Buddhism. 
um, which offered some very direct and simple meditation instructions. And something of that just, just spoke to me very directly at that moment. I said, wow, this is, this is really, this is it. This is somewhere I sort of, that I was looking for to make kind of those things that I've heard about, thought about, speculated about, something that I could actually practice you know, for myself. That some, was somehow at that time um, for me the steps that was, was somehow missing. And I had been studying philosophy and, you know, got a lot of headache from that. And it was just different kind of theories and ideas. And, but that didn't make me feel somehow more free. And then I started to look at religion. And then you got different beliefs. And you, know, you believe one system or another. But how could I somehow make this more like an experience thing, a felt thing, something that was kind of mine that I could work with? And suddenly meditation seemed to give me the, the link. And one thing that happened for me, say, I was liberating right from the first time, you know, it was a Zen thing, and I told you about, you know, sitting cross-legged and all that, and I wasn't used to Zen, so it, was, it hurt like hell. And I managed about five minutes. But something had just hit me very strong, and, it was, and that's why I said it was like, for me, I thought about that. This is, was a kind of a 180-degree turn, because, and that was like what the book said, basically, what, what hit me, there were kind of two were two particular phrases. It was a, a, a um, Soto Zen book, you know, the teachings of Dogen, and it was a very characteristic kind of way of talking about it. Was, one thing he was saying was, if you're looking for happiness, uh, stop running after it, because everything that you need for fulfillment is here and now, in the present moment. And that just, you know, was just at that time, I, I don't know, I hadn't thought about it, I guess. <laughs> it was just, just, that was a 180 degree turn for me because I actually came across that, as I, I mentioned that before, I guess, to some of you, that was in Rio de Janeiro, out of all places, when I came to Buddhism. And obviously that was exactly what I had been doing. You know, I was born in Hamburg, that's where I grew up, and since I, I was kind of in my late teens, I had just been running all over the, the planet to find happiness, I thought I, I couldn't find it in Hamburg, and I didn't find it in Berlin, and then I didn't find it in Spain, and then I went to South America. I've, I looked for a place to go where I could find what I needed to do with my life. And I had arrived at Rio de Janeiro by then, and I wasn't happy, and I was still searching, and I was wondering where to go next. And here was this guy telling me, stop running after it. It's here now. And... It's strange how it works with the mind, isn't it? I couldn't say that I, you know, I'd seen it or something, but just this turning your attention inward rather than outward, just already, just at that time, it felt like this, this was it. I just, I'd seen the light. You know? The other phrase was saying to meditations about sitting down and dying now. <laughs> you, you know, often, like I said, goes. You have to hear those things at the right moment, isn't it? You just have to be somehow ready to hear that right things for it to do you, do something to you. You know, you might have heard that at another time and just said, right, what, what does he mean by that, die now, you know? How do you die now? I mean, I don't want to die, no? But then, then, in that context, context, it just made just very, had this very strong meaning, made this very strong impact. It was about stopping, you know? Stop looking out there and grasping after it. And it was interesting, it just changed for me the kind of thing that it, one thing that happened immediately for me in that point was it liberated an enormous amount of energy, which is an interesting experience, which you know, I didn't have really in the, the, the conceptual or intellectual or even the, the insight for, to, to give it a right framework. But it was um, one thing I, I do remember, like even as a concrete thought in my mind, was this, I, I knew now that the real thing was just, it's just happening here, it's happening now. And it's something that I can access anytime when I just meditate and just you know, stop looking for things or creating something, but just look at what's actually coming up naturally, what is actually happening now, and how do I actually relate to it. That the whole difference about suffering and freedom is in that. I mean, something in me felt seemed to have to kind of recognize that. And what it trans- it, the way it translated itself for me in my life at that time was that in some ways I took myself less serious and took a lot of kind of the, my outside 
engagements and anxieties and about what, what I had to do with my life and, and, you know, finding a career or whatnot and things that I felt very anxious about and very heavy. And I, was, I, wasn't, I wasn't smiling very much at the time. If I see photos of myself on that time, it's quite a very serious kind of young man, you know, very intense. And, and then suddenly that just broke that thing apart to pieces because suddenly I just, because I felt, no, the real thing is, well, I can't even say somewhere else. It's right here. Nothing to do with that. And that was interesting. That felt, obviously, as you can perhaps imagine, very liberating. <laughs> but actually, also was called liberating in, in actually, which now, we sometimes, of course, know in not very wise ways. And that is an interesting thing, again, as you talk about mindfulness and the trap, the danger in mindfulness, and just practicing mindfulness. Because, yes, I had seen something there and it had had a strong effect on me. And suddenly I had so much energy. And obviously something would happen is people felt attracted to that. Suddenly all kinds of people started to talk to me. Things happened to me, you know, then wanting to get in some kind of relationship with me. Then, then some of it was actually rather dubious. And I suddenly get quite afraid, actually, of the effects that I started to have on other people. Part of me started to feel very fond of that, you know. I've got something going here, obviously. And part of it started to get, oh, what's all this? You know, I don't, I, I don't want this. You know? Which so shows you, of course, I guess, you know, I hope, I, I would now it shows me like a lot of things. But this is the thing I said: we are only aware of what we are aware of. We are not aware of what we are not aware of. Which is a catch twenty-two, isn't it? Which is a, which is a catch twenty-two that we always have to factor in our practice, our mindfulness, because. While all this thing was happening, I had, of course, all kinds, all kinds of agendas in my life. You know, still, I still have a lot now, but then I had a lot more that I wasn't aware of at all. They weren't examined. And they were actually still, of course, running full throttle and were immediately hijacking also my meditation. You know? Like I was really interested in, in psychic experiences and paranormal things, and partly because it just you know, gave me an interesting, you know, I said I was interested because it would seem proof that there's kind of more to life than, you know, what you might find in their kind of rational, materialistic kind of textbooks about what's supposed to be and what's not. So that's was fascinating to me. That would give me kind of proof. So, of course, really I was also interested to getting access to those through meditation. And actually I had kind of thought, now I found this meditation, this technique, and it's all happening here. Of course, I had an agenda there. I was going to deepen meditation. I would get access to paranormal experiences and all that kind of stuff, you know, and could even maybe use some, you know, tricks there, like Don Juan or something like that, you know, and would make my would make me much more attractive and smart and get me into all kind of exciting adventures in life. And part of the all kind of um, taking everything out there not so serious anymore certainly didn't improve. In the beginning, my, my moral outlook of life suddenly was all more fun, you know. So I just went out there with even much more charged batteries. You know, what I would now see with hindsight is when I say I suddenly all this energy was liberated, I think it was partly because there was, before there was you know, this serious, you know, young, conflicted man, a lot of psychological, emotional energy was just bound up in those in, internal conflicts. I was just blocking myself a lot. There's all kinds of doubts and uncertainties and, and just taking it all very serious. This first insight about that's not really where it's happening. It's, you know, this is, it's all much more immediately. It just suddenly just released a lot of that because I just, not just as an idea, but experientially, I just didn't take it so serious anymore. That's why I, could, I went out there and, you know, in Rio de Janeiro, there's a lot of fun to go out for out there. I just went out there with much more gusto. You say that in English? That's an English word. Gusto. See? And which of partly, of course, certainly I was all this, you know, much more joyful, radiant, and, you know, you know, the world was mine, you know, the world was my oyster. And, of course, that made me also much more attractive to other people who suddenly could all swarm to me. They were not all, all wholesome either. <laughs> and certainly I was in a lot of trouble. Um, you can get easily into a lot of trouble in Rio de Janeiro. <laughs> um, and that, of course, uh, helpfully and luckily, very quickly made me to re-examine a bit, you know, and actually 
uh, quite quickly, actually, and for my own um, benefit and good luck, I should recognize that it was a lot of kind of quite natural, seems to be kind of wholesomeness in myself, which meant I started to pull the brake on a lot of those things and look at some things more closely and pick up more you know, of the rest of the Buddhist teaching. You know, there's much more in the Buddhist teaching than mindfulness, and for good reason. Because to be truly actually able to live just from that you know, intuitive awareness in a way that's actually free and beautiful, we have actually to purify our heart, our mind, you know, make it actually beautiful so that it actually acts and listens in accordance with truth. No. We, don't, we can't go past that either. We do it now before we kind of move you know, further into the, the, the pool of mindfulness or we do it later. We, we first get the pain from getting it wrong Right? And they say, well, no, wait a moment, something here doesn't work. I'm creating actually more suffering for myself here. Then we need to extend mindfulness and look at that with mindfulness, isn't it? So, and that's the process. And I think that was a long, that it was for, also for me, and it's of course ongoing from then onwards to then start to, I didn't lose faith in mindfulness there because the experience of that freedom was clear and obvious enough. But I started to realize, well, this can't be the whole story. This is just still very limited. I have to really extend this radiance which comes with mindfulness to everything in my life. Everything. And in particular, also all the little nooks and crannies that I don't want to look into because I feel uncomfortable or where I don't feel so good about myself, I feel embarrassed about myself. I'm going to have to become mindful of that as well and look at that clearly and see what's actually happening there. And what's the suffering in there? And what's my part in it? How am I creating it? That's where we have to take mindfulness to. That's when you know, we use all of our experience in order to develop mindfulness, and we use the mindfulness to then examine and question all our experience to become free of every way, any way, and any and every way in which we can actually stay hooked and, and, and protect our own delusions about ourselves and which that, that enable us to keep just creating suffering in sometimes coarse and obvious ways and sometimes just very subtle ways. You know, that's part of then the you know, ongoing process in, 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 in the development of mindfulness with the help of all the other tools. You know, morality, sila, samadhi, panya. So if mindfulness goes into some, the samadhi bits and the sila, you know, the morality and the panya, the reflecting actually questioning, examining, until there's nothing left. And then we, don't, we can't lose it anymore because there's no way, no way to escape from mindfulness anymore. We can only really fall out of mindfulness and escape from it if there are still those untidy kind of nooks or crannies, cozy places, you know, duvets under which we can hide and smother our clear seeing. Which, if they are there, we just have to face up to the fact, be honest with ourselves. There's a part in ourselves, an active force in ourselves, which you might call ignorance, which is interested in maintaining those. Because there might be places which we don't really want to know yet. And maybe it's, there's even a wisdom to it, because maybe we are not ready yet. You know? Maybe it's this thing that we just need to learn and you know, develop strengths kind of gradually. Um, And that's, um, I guess, as, as you all in your own ways know from your own life, it's just a, a, a process that's just ongoing. Who knows, you know, if it, when or where, if it ever ends. You know? and so I just always remember, like, from Ajahn Chah's teaching, which I only know from books or tapes, never met him, but he was saying he was always warning about any kind of idea of attainment, you know, having arrived somewhere, because that's then usually where ignorance can move in and, and, and lures into... Um, oblivion, which is just another duvet cover under which to hide. Isn't it? If you think you've arrived somewhere, then you stop questioning and examining. You just act from the assumption that you don't need to further investigate that because you're already there. So the encouragement is like even when you think you've arrived somewhere, just keep practicing anyway, you know, just in case. <laughs> and I guess for most of us, we're probably aware enough that there's always still suffering in our life, and as long as there's suffering, then there should be the obvious um, motivation, of course, to, to need to keep 
continue to practice to extend awareness into our suffering with all the with any kind of skillful means that, that we find in the teachings or that we can come up with ourselves. You know? As the Buddha himself used to say, anything. You know, even like if you don't find it directly in what, 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 what the Buddha said himself, you know, that anything that helps towards cultivating and maintaining wholesome states of mind is, is in the um, realm of the Eightfold Path of the Buddhist teaching. So it's an encouragement to, to ourselves to be creative and to find what actually helps us you know, towards more wholesomeness, more lightness of being, more, more ready and easy access to the natural goodness of the heart you know, and to more and stronger and more subtle mindfulness. And it can just be sometimes we get quite exciting new insights, uh, new releases maybe of, of life force, of well-being, of energy, you know, new, 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 more free ways of, of experiencing ourselves and the world. And sometimes it just doesn't look so straightforward. Sometimes it's just very hard work, and, and, but it's all part of it. It's not a linear kind of straightforward path that you can just copy out of a textbook. It's life and each individual of us is just, just too complex and, and complicated for that. So there's no 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 there are no guarantees of course no safeties but the, the the general just trust trusting in in the fact that this is just something that when if you have tasted there's even a little bit the potential the possibility of freedom that we just keep trusting and just keep working keep being as long as we can trust our own internal aspiration you know, to want to know and to be free. Then there's nothing to lose because then we, we then we know whatever we do, even if we make mistakes, then we have the, the, the willingness and the, the humility to acknowledge that and to pick us up from where we fall down and just keep going. Mm-hmm. The one thing that we will know then is that we won't give up. We just keep going, however long it takes, however small steps, you know, we, we might have to limit ourselves to in the present moment. Well, if that's what's needed, that's what we're doing, mm-hmm. and that's how gradually just the past accumulates. Strengths and forth. So that's um, certainly how it has been for me, and I, you know, <laughs> I, it feels sometimes when I think back of that, that first when I first started to meditate, I have a very clear memory that of that first meditation and how it hurt. <laughs> um, in some ways, it feels like I've gone a long way, you know, from there to now. And it's, but it's weird how in other ways, and it's probably also familiar to many of us, you feel that sometimes it just feels you haven't actually learned hardly anything at all. And it's just still, it still feels just so limited. And it's just so much still to learn. But, you know, there's no choice. You just have to, it's just that simple, isn't it? You just have to realize again and again, just know, okay, yes. You see, there's a limitation, so then what else is there to do? And it's being humbly acknowledged and then, okay. Just keep practicing as good as you can. And as much as, as well as you understand it, you know, according to what you know now. Hmm. Um, maybe tomorrow you will know more. And then you can do more subtle things, do things better. And, and so just, you can just keep learning from our mistakes. You know. So I'd like to offer that for your reflection tonight. And may I, <coughs>